Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Susan Oliver is an entrepreneur and company director who is deeply committed to Australia's innovation and diversity agendas. Susan headed the Commission for the Future, which sadly is still Australia's only attempt to embed long-term thinking into Australian public policy. She was also lead author and a facilitator in a number of significant scenario processes in Australia. Currently, Susan is founding chairman of Scale Investors, a female-focused angel investing network. She is an angel investor herself and the co-inventor of two software systems and co-founder of a technology startup company. Susan is an experienced listed company director of more than 20 years with strong commercial and technical skills and has been a constant advocate for the strategy and governance roles of company boards. Susan co-founded The Big Issue in Australia and has contributed significantly to the innovation, IT and arts policy agendas in Australia over a period of 30 years. She was a British Council Scholar, was awarded a Centenary Medal for Services to Business and in 2013 was named as one of the 100 Women of Influence by Westpac and the Australian Financial Review. Susan, welcome to FuturePod. Thank you, Peter. Fantastic to have you here. I'm glad to be here too because I like telling the story. <laughs> That's great. The first question is really for you to tell your story of really how you got here to where you are now. So over to you. Where does the story start? Well, the story starts with the sense that we needed to make better decisions and we needed to make better public policy. And also a sense that we were driven very much around economics. And that just didn't seem fair. There were people being left out of the equation. The environment was being left out of the equation. And the future was being left out of the equation. So at university here at, at Melbourne, in the architecture and building faculty, I was really lucky to have the um, two lecturers who were very focused on environment and who gave us every opportunity to really be thinking around um, changes in society and how, I guess, empowering us to feel that we could be influential. And so following university, I was in um, government in the Ministry of Housing, it was a housing commission, and I saw things that just weren't fair. And you could see that they were driven by a particular agenda, probably political, probably economic, social was left out, environmental was left out, and certainly the impact on future generations was being left out. So that gave me thought around better decision making. And I located a woman called Christine McNulty in the UK. And she'd done a study for the third London airport. 
And she'd really looked in that systemic way across a whole range of influences and unintended consequences. And that her husband, Kirk McNulty, just wrote a few paragraphs or probably chapters of a book. But I remember him saying, the future is not at the end of a trend line. He said, if we had have really believed that, then in 1890, we would, would have thought there was going to be a church on every street corner. And so together with Christine's work, which was very, very, very broad, very systemic, and his paradigm shifting thinking, I became really keen on thinking about better decision-making tools. So that really was... has informed my career. Right. And when you, I mean, were there, were there people that, then gave you support and, and inspiration in Australia that you found as you started the journey? Well, I'll go back to those university lecturers, um, certainly um, Elizabeth Caldicutt and Blanche, Blanche Mertz were very, very influential and really taught and encouraged us and rewarded us to think differently, to problem solve differently. So that was very, very important. In Australia at that time, there wasn't a lot of I wouldn't have found anything written about foresight. Mm. Um, Barry Jones was, of course, the great hero right through my career. And I think his writing was very, very important. And again, he was thinking about the future. He was thinking systemically. So I think I'd probably say Barry was the most influential person mm. in my own work. And did you, did you find work in this uh, using this way of thinking? No, but it helped inform my work. And so I've been, I've had a career where I've had many, many opportunities to change and to influence and to get people to think differently. So I guess that's part of influence. And I've really practiced it myself. You know, in, in foresight work, we say fairly glibly, you know, there's social, technological, environmental, economic, political. i at organisational because there's a lot of things where organisation is both an inhibitor as well as an enabler. But just, I guess that's where my head was. And I was always a strategic thinker and I was always a systemic thinker. And so having something I could pin my, sort of structure my thinking processes with, as I started to read about foresight, um, learn about scenarios, read some of the um, better texts of, you know, that were around at the time, it was good to be able to say, yes, that, you know, here's the structure. And by reading the structure and understanding the structure, I was getting a better angle on probably what was a reasonably natural propensity for me to think mm -hmm. and, and inform decisions. Was this around the time or was this a later development when you got into the thought, the thought leadership role? Uh, well, the Commission for the Future was before the thought right. leadership okay. role. And if we go back a little bit further, I started doing strategy work and that came out of going to Oxford. And again, I think I'd always been strategic, but I needed the structures to right. sort of say, this is strategy. And in doing the strategy course at, at Oxford, it was, it gave me permission in a way. So I think that's a little bit hard to, to describe that very well, but it, it meant that I could say, oh, look, this is a strategic way of seeing, right. seeing it, and this in, this involves foresight. Yes. And so suddenly I had some words and some structures yeah. that gave greater permission 
to me to influence and to make decisions in the way that I think yeah, that I had a natural inclination to do. Yeah, certainly. I know Newtons have always found like a validity, which is not about their own validity, but it actually means I've, I've actually got some basis for actually thinking this way, posing questions this way. And the notion of, of the validity to thinking that comes through understanding that there actually is a discipline, there actually are texts, there actually are methodologies. Yeah. Yes. And it's to give you confidence, but also for the person you're talking to, to actually say that someone's not making this up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Commission for the Future, that's an interesting one given, well, as I said, it is still Australia's only attempt mm. at it. was Barry Jones's mm. um, vision. vision. Can you say anything about that, basically the Commission and sort of, you know, how you got involved, what you found, what you now think of it, just because it is now over, well, it's over 30 years now since we... <laughs> We had the commission. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's a long time. <laughs> um, nearly 30 years. I think the Commission for the Future didn't really ever have the impact it should have because it wasn't subscribed to um, by the private sector. It wasn't subscribed to and used by politicians for policy. And it sat outside of the structures. So it sat outside of... A department, it sat outside of the political process, which was both its strengths, but in the end, its weakness or its vulnerability. Did we do good work? I think previous, you know, the, the heads of the commission prior to me, there was some really good work and you can think about it. And the way I came to the commission was I was at a, a, a technology strategy. I was heading up a technology strategy business unit for an Australian company. And they asked me to be involved in a project which was looking at how design thinking came into environment and object design and societal design. So it was a broad thinking around design. And, and so you know, having a bit of a reputation for strategy and technology and so on, they brought me into that project and that's how I knew about the commission. So there were many good projects. I had an agenda around energy management yep. and policy. Um, superannuation. They had an, superannuation was one of, one of mine. An agenda around the environment generally. Asia Link was spawned by the um, Commission for the Future and uh, went off to have its own life and, and has been a phenomenal influence around that sort of Asianisation of Australia. And, and we had other agendas around ageing, around refugees, around good decision-making on bioethics. I some, mean, of those every things, one some of, of those things, things haven't gone away. They're, they're just, just as valid today, yeah. which why when you say it was 30 years ago, yeah. makes it even more, you can say, remarkable that we could see those things. Or you could say frustrating that we're still not taking good policy positions and using the information that could be available and we're getting politics and and getting into a contested environment instead of a thought through and and thoughtful outcome. So I think we had some very good agendas. We were very cash-strapped. It was always a bit of a fight. We became a political target. Mm. And in the particular election that John Hewson was uh, contesting uh, for the Liberals, um, the Liberals had several cuts, and one was sort of several hundreds of millions from defence and several hundreds of millions from something else and one million from the Commission for the Future. So yes. we're right up there with the big guys. <laughs> <laughs>
he didn't get in, so we weren't cut, but it was a slow, a slower think, death yeah. because we're just starved of funds and starved of support. Susan, the second question we like to ask people who come and talk to us is really for them to get their, to roll their sleeves up and get out of the bonnet and talk about the actual doing of foresight and the yeah. doing of futures work. So I'm certainly aware that you've got a long experience in scenarios and so I'd love to hear your ideas on scenarios, both how you do it, what the challenges are for practitioners, that kind of thing. Do you know Margaret Wheatley's book? And in it there's a, a line which says the power of scenarios is getting a lot of people in one room creating the system and thinking systemically. And I, that's really the way I've always approached it. So if you can get a very diverse group of people in a room and give them the opportunity to think differently, but give them the privilege of time to think. So I'm not the person who can come up with the view of the future. And particularly if you're talking about a particular focus or subject area, it's really uh, for people who are, have engaged in thinking about it or interacted with it or in some way who can do a better job. So getting not just a whole bunch of teachers, if you're doing education, but all of the people in that surround sound of the system. So it could be people who are funders or people who are students or people who are administrators or people who 20 years ago wrote syllabus or people who... So you know what I mean. So getting that group of people to think about their system and to encourage them to take that range of, as I said earlier, the, the, the social, technological, environmental view of the world and then to push it out. And from that, um, push it out into the future and push it out into another space that they've not thought about or just in the day-to-day -day have not had the opportunity to think about. As you know, Peter, because you and I have worked on scenarios, we both really like the fact that a scenario is a complex, dynamic system. And today, the world we live in is a complex, dynamic system. And the influences that can take us from today to tomorrow can be quite random or they can be understood. And some of them are going to be more likely than others. So searching for those levers or those directions that take you from this today's dynamic complex system into the future possible complex dynamic systems <laughs> and then imagining those in all of those dimensions is first of all fabulous intellectually and sometimes what happens, or often what happens, is you arrive at a place that you never thought of. And I, I, I just find that very challenging. And then you, you start thinking about how you put a decision into that future. And I think that from that sort of thinking, you can actually make better decisions. So it comes back to good decision making. And it's not for me to be making better decisions. It's going to be for the people who are engaged in working through those stories and those narratives and those possibilities who then become informed on the way. So it's not just getting them in the room, but it's taking them on a journey or letting them take themselves on a journey, enabling that journey. So at the end of the journey, they're actually better ready for possibilities and challenges and dynamics and will be better participants in 
influencing yeah, I mean, that outcome. Certainly. What was, I think, quite singular in, in working with scenarios with you was the sight of you having a room of 50 to 70 people where you facilitated the 50 to 70 people having a conversation. They weren't, it wasn't in groups of 10 where you facilitated the group conversations, but you sat in the middle of, you know, an enormous number of people and got them to talk to one another through you. Do you want to just go into that, what well, that was? breaking into groups of eight or ten, there's always somebody who's dominating and and there's always people who follow because that's the easiest thing to do. So, in fact, the facilitation becomes the, 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 the thing that stops one voice and enables many voices. And... And I don't find that hard, you see, because I'm I like all this stuff happening because my head's chasing it around. So I don't I don't mind if there's 50 or 60 or 70. The thing that I have to do is give everybody a voice and bring that out. And then as they bring out their ideas, sort of draw the relationship. So that's the systems mm. mapping that you did. And yes. um and you start to draw the relationships and see the the relationships that keep on getting strengthened by the ideas that people have putting there and that's your systems map so again, i guess you could say we created a big mess well <laughs> i think again for the listeners benefit because i think you are playing it down those conversations often went for two hours yeah where you were you were in the middle of a storm because yeah. what you were trying to get from people was not an agreed position you wanted a disagreed position you wanted people to ch for one Challenge. person to say something and then someone to say I see it differently. You were trying to get, and again, I'm going to bring it back. You said you enjoyed it, but how do you, how do you stay in, how do you manage yourself and what's going on in such a dynamic process? Um, gosh. Well, first of all, knowing that you are capturing it gives me tremendous confidence to keep on going and keep on moving really fast so that you're under a lot of stress. Hmm. <laughs> well, I probably can't answer the question. Well, can I just... actually just make a point? Because one of the things, you used to read a tremendous amount of information in terms of preparing yourself to facilitate the conversation. Yep. Now, yep. you were not trying to come up with a forward view yourself. Yep. But do you want to talk about how important it was for you to be, if you like, familiar with the language, the terminology, yes. such that you could do it? All right. Thank you. That's a good lead to that question. I, right through that time, probably not so much today, I've, but right through those 20 or 30 years when I was really involved in that work, I just read all of the time. So I really looked to understand what was happening with technology, with digital, with biotech, with material science. I was really keen to see what was happening around the Australian Asian influences and dynamics and politics. So I think that broad is it scanning is probably a good word. Um, just scanning, scanning, scanning the environment all of the time. So that when somebody raised an issue, you could actually give it a context that they mightn't have even known. And I think that kept conversations going as well. So this is not a lazy person's facilitation. This is totally Im immersed in the moment of all the influences on the, the particular issue or the particular 
problem or sets of problems or policy agenda that was on the table to be thought through. Um, so yes, that that was a very big part of it. I think it's called scanning. Yeah, mm. but it's actually yeah, um, yes, it is the scanning to be, but but not but but at the same time to still be open. Oh yeah. Yeah, you, the job was really to say, you've said this, and if you think about it in relation to this evolving biotechnology dilemma, then you might also see it in that light. So it's, it's stimulating and challenging to, to get that additional yep. thought. The other part of the method that I want you to talk to is that having had that two-hour conversation and having filled 27 whiteboards with... Um, a spaghetti diagram, you then stood in front of that and formulated three or four or five emergent possible scenarios. It was not a reductionist process and it was not formulaic, but you felt it was critical to to make sense of it in terms of a set of scenarios. At, at um, the moment that the moment. gave them an outcome for all of their hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got to admit, I mean, on the other side of it, it was terrifying to stand in front of it simply saying, we have to come up with something mm. for them to talk about. Yes, so, we remember those moments of terror. But it always came about, didn't it? So perhaps that's because we be we became quite good at it or perhaps it was just because we were terrified. Mm. <laughs> or perhaps it was because there was a logic that sat there. Yeah. And it was about revealing the logic. And then you'd reveal it and you'd say, yeah, that works. And therefore, so. Yeah. Um, but but that, that moment, you know that you had to do it to give them an outcome for the yeah. all their hard work. But that was very terrifying. Yes. And again, back to the process, what would happen is we would then break the group of 50 into smaller groups. Each group would have a little mini scenario, I'd call it, mm. with its own set of logics. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would pose a series of questions for each group to consider in their scenario. And those questions came from the brief, from the client? Generally, and sometimes they just came out of the conversations that we'd had. Because what we're trying to do is, having got the scenarios, and these weren't written up in a narrative at this stage. These were names and a few bullet, bullet points of the major influences within those scenarios. So mini scenarios or sort of un incomplete scenarios. And so that was the stimulus for them to, to say, well, what else would happen in that world? So here's an opportunity to, to populate it with more thoughts relevant to the topic that we're trying to think through. And then the next step, having said, well, this is what will happen, therefore, what do you do? How do you prepare yourself for that future? What are the sorts of decisions you should be facing? What are the key influences on any sort of policy that you're form forming? So by the end of the day, you'd have something which said, here's some steps here's some steps, here's some things that we should be doing, or here's some aspects of our strategy that really need to be embedded in our in our thinking. So you're taking people to a point where they've got something that's an outcome, not just a big mess. But then you took it further because in quite a singular way, you also were a crafter of scenarios themselves. You took great care to write up scenarios. I'd like you to talk to how you saw the how you went about you know, creating a strong narrative 
out of the work that the group had done on the day? I think you have to, I think I had to, live it. And so I just begin by saying, in this world that I am thinking about, if all of those things are true, then all of these other things would be true. And so it was really, again, it was completing the system, completing the system's relationships and ensuring that you'd cover that broad range of issues, not sort of a narrow focus, and then getting inside it and writing the story as if you're there. Yeah, I mean, again, I I would characterise they were decision-maker scenarios. The decision-maker was always in the scenario. The decisions that the decision-maker was making were apparent in the scenario. And as the scenarios changed, the decisions themselves possibly had to change as well. Yeah, yeah. And it goes right back to why I did any of this. It was about better decisions. (laughs) We've gone in a big circle and that's where we've landed. So, Susan, this is the question we ask people. As you as you look into the now and you imagine the future, how are you sense-making the present and the futures that you see emerging? And, you know, give it the context of whatever makes sense to you. Mm. Okay. When I started my career, I think life was very much simpler, very much simpler. And if you think that, just the technology enablers weren't there. So things were slower. And I actually feel that the containment of them, you know, there was Melbourne and there was Sydney was a long way away and you didn't go there very often. And and uh, travel was, you know, a lot less frequent and a lot more expensive relatively. So I think that containment, that sort of my little world, gave me a really strong sense that I could make a difference. That here it was, I could see it, could almost see the, the line around it, and therefore I could move in there and I could make a difference. I think today it's so complex and it's so changing that I, I see younger people not having that confidence that they can actually make a difference. And so if you don't feel that you can make a difference, if you don't feel that it's a, an environment, a geography, or that you have any particular alignment to, I think it's hard to have a belief system. And so you're taking away what I had, which was a belief system, several things, not, not necessarily religious, but probably informed by um, religion, certainly informed by country town and that cohesion. And I just think that we've taken away the institutions, we've taken away the belief systems, life's very complex, it's changing enormously, and I think it is very hard for younger people to have a sense that they can make a difference. Mm. I think that makes them selfish. I think that makes them say, well, this is my life and I must do what I want the way I want to do it because... What else? So it worries me that the future 
because in the end the future's made by all the individuals mm. in it and it worries me that it's so tough for kids. To... It's interesting because, I mean, what you describe is kind of, as we grew up, there were kind of clear lines and, and, and barriers to how far you went and almost barriers and restrictions made us push harder against the barriers to almost go further. Yeah. Uh, Zygmunt Bauman, uh, the German sociologist, I'm sure you've read Bauman's stuff, but he, he coined a phrase about 15 years ago which he called liquid modernity, which is the modernity where there are no boundaries, where yeah. you have responsibility to craft your own story and the exhausting nature of you, you have to do all the work. There's no ability for you to drop into a role or drop into a, yeah. a thing. It's up to you. Yes, and that can be for good or bad. It can be for selfish or it can be for social. And I just sense that it will be more about selfish because that's probably all that you can actually really see. Mm. What 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 is society? What is your social society? And so the way people socialise is, you know, the Italians we know when I've been in Italy are very much about family and much less about community. We in Australia have had a very strong sense of community and I think we still do. But I think we'd better grab hold of it and write it down because we could lose it. <laughs> and I've recently been appointed to the board of the Fisherman's Bend development and Fisherman's Bend is a huge adjoining area here at Melbourne for 450 hectares or it's oh. it's gigantic. And, um, and in the brief for that role I was what was described to me was Melbourne with 8 million people. That is doubling of the population. Now, we, we're here in Melbourne because we love Melbourne. There's something about that geography, about the dynamics, about our history that we love. But if we don't articulate that, are we going to hold it, hold on to it? And we don't do a good job of capturing it. So if I go back to the big issue, okay, I was involved in it. I was just one of three people who worked pretty hard to get that up and going. Why did we do it? Why have I got 80 or something angels in the scale angel community who give their time for nothing and are deeply committed to what they're trying to do? So there's something incredibly important around the the bonds that create our social being, our social world, for want of a better word, but we'd better capture them, and I think because I don't know how you hang on to something that you don't define particularly well. Probably didn't describe that very well. So if I think about my father and his world, he believes in the age, the ABC, Collingwood Football Club and the Labour Party. I said that at a, an event that John Kane, the ex-Premier of Victoria, was at, and he said, well, he must be a pretty good bloke. My daughter doesn't believe in any of those no. things. And she doesn't she doesn't read a newspaper, a broadsheet. She goes into the social media and she picks and chooses between those things which interest her, which are not necessarily challenging her or broadening her mind. But she's certainly not institutionalised around where she reads, where she takes her information, the party she believes in, and, and she's, um, you know, woe behind betide her if she starts talking about football. So I just think that it's very fragmented. Your liquid, that's a very good word, mm. 
So I, I don't feel very confident about the future. I don't think, don't think we're making good decisions. I think the fact that 30 years ago the Commission for the Future had an agenda that's still not resolved, I think what we've done about refugees is appalling. I think that our environmental and energy policies are appalling. It's not thought through, it's ad hoc. So do I think that things are getting better? Well, of course, aspects of them are. Are we setting ourselves up to make good decisions that will make the world a better place for everybody? I think we're crossing our... F I think we're into a cross our fingers <laughs> and let's hope <laughs> future scenario. Yeah. Peter, yeah. and so that worries me. So, you, so Susan, yes, we might think it's difficult, especially for younger people, but you yourself are still investing your time into things that you believe at the moment are still worth investing in. Um, so there are things that you know, give you hope, but also encourage you to continue investing into, along with your angel investors also giving their time. Yes, you're right. So... Perhaps it's a little bit of habit. Perhaps I'm still trying to prove something. I don't know. No, look, I, I, um, if I use scale angels and my angels as an example, I think I look at their, their age 35 up, remarkable women, mainly women, but not only women, who are really committed, very energetic, incredibly talented with great diversity in their backgrounds, law and technology and working all around the world. And their commitment and their energy I find remarkable. So if I was to write down the, the brief for Melbourne with 8 million people, I'd say this is the sort of thing we have to maintain. Now we've got a particular focus, which is around supporting women and women-led startups, because again, back to the future, the future of work, I think, is going to be the jobs we create ourselves. And so, again, we're still thinking about the future. We're still having foresight. And some work that I did five or six years ago showed that less than 4% of the funds available for the startup world were actually going to women. So excluding women from the next digital technology-led or whatever revolution didn't seem like a good idea. So, yes, I'm optimistic that there's amazing, talented people who are prepared to give their time, energy, and they also believe in this need for women to be active participants in that future of work. So, Susan, one of the things that often is a challenge to people who are studying foresight or, or, or learning their way into the field is how they actually explain foresight to people who might necessarily not know what it means or when someone talks about the future, why do we pay attention? So how do you frame or explain foresight and you know, th this kind of thinking to people who possibly haven't encountered it before? Well, I'm going to be incredibly boring because I will always come back to making better decisions and for those decisions to not have unintended consequences on the future. So I would say foresight is the responsibility 
to take into consideration the, the many aspects of where you might want to you might want to take your future or make good decisions that will impact in, into that future in the most effective way. So I still come back to decision making, but I'm saying it's it's our responsibility not to make decisions today that have all sorts of unintended negative consequences or perhaps positive, but it's also our responsibility to be uh, influencing a better future. So I guess that's probably a very poor definition. No, no. Um, it's, it's worked for me. <laughs> I was actually at a conference with Rick Slaughter and others, World Future Studies Federation, just after the Russian, um, you know, the, United, the USSR had sort of broken down. And we were in Norway, and Norway had, while there was a USSR, this captive market, and they'd never really thought that it'd ever go away. And uh, suddenly it did. And so a very senior person in the, in the government said we needed foresight if to do nothing else but at least to capture the possibility that something like this can happen. And he actually really welcomed us as foresight practitioners to give him advice on how Norway could regain and rethink their, was it Finland? I'm saying Norway, I mean Finland, how Finland can rethink and and um, recast their industry and their economy. So that was very, it was a good lesson because he's saying, well, look, we're, you'd think that this particular set of circumstances was going to go on forever. Perhaps it might, perhaps it could have, but they had no contingency planning because it was unimaginable. And yet the unimaginable yes, can happen. Imagine, yes, well, again, it, 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 it's that notion, I think, around trying to get people to not make decisions and think they're throwing a dart of the future, but to yeah. actually have the notion that a decision that you make now could could well be in multiple futures. And would it be a wise decision if the world turns out as X or the world yes. turns out as Y? Yeah. So really so the testing. notion... Yeah. testing. Mm. So the notion of testing decision-making mm. to get the wisest, because mm. there can be no right decision. Mm. The other thing too, of course, is that if you're casting several possible futures for, and you've, you've worked out that if some sort of trend goes that way or is more emphasized in another one just actually monitoring so you can have if you've got and an, you know, most of the time I would say we struggle to go out beyond five six seven years I think that's really hard for the human mind to go right out and leap into the future it's more likely we see some sort of continuities rather than discontinuities it's easier but if we're really thinking about seeing some indications and directions so if we if we if we're conscious of what sort of trends or influences can be taking us to these various possible futures then we can actually be monitoring to see which one actually happens. So the very famous Royal Dutch Shell scenarios are exactly that, having determined that these were the influences on the um, the demand for and price of oil. They then monitored very closely, and Royal Dutch Shell, which was a smaller company at the time, and I only know the story as it is written, then identified the influence, got in first, and were able to actually be better prepared for that scenario 
as it as it actually happened. Yep, that's correct. And mm. yeah, and they had to consider multiple futures, and they weren't they weren't predisposed on a single future. But at the time, the board had to make a decision based on a likely future. And, that... and, and what was also interesting about that was that it was a faint signal. Mm. So the things that they thought was the issue that they thought was going to be most deterministic of that future was the, the sense of uh, ensuring the best price and the return to, to the society from the price of oil and um, best dividend to society of that oil. And therefore, they had to tune into the local politicians and the local discussions and newspaper which they probably wouldn't have otherwise done. So no. it was, a, for them, a faint signal off-line from what they would normally yeah. be looking at as a big company. Okay, Susan, last one. I think, given your wide, wide experience as a as a board as a as a listed board member, I'd lo I'd like you to talk about how you fold your foresight, futures thinking into your board roles and responsibilities, and also the experience of just of just trying to do that thinking on boards. It's really not easy, and I would say I am a totally compromised futurist on boards. So the best opportunity is obviously in strategy and often that becomes quite not visionary, very much an evolution of today. So, But the way I, I try to influence strategy is to keep on coming back to the business idea. So remember at the heart of the theory that I like to think about is what is the business idea, which is this thinking of what is the what is it that the business does that creates value for whom that is unique. And then you have to think about, well, if you've captured that and that might be for several whoms, several customers or stakeholders, and then you have to start challenging yourself about the constant nature of that so the constant nature of that customer because they're changing the constant nature of what they might value the constant nature of whether or not that's unique and how many competitors are coming at you or what else is shifting so it's really sort of starting with that sort of almost certainty Remember that many businesses don't think about themselves as creating value for somebody. And um, so starting with that certainty and then challenging the certainty of it. So that's how I play it into strategy and, and start trying to push the thinking out, with sometimes with success and sometimes not with success. But remember that as I have influence on the board, that I am thinking about it. Yep. And so it may be that I sort of push a little bit here or influence a little bit there. And um, and so you can influence. So, you know, if I go back many, many years now and when I was on the board of Transurban and Transurban's a very different company today and I'm you know, all credit to them. But with the management at that time, we were um, one of the first Australian companies to be in the Dow Jones Sustainability Index because we knew that in terms of the whole 
philosophy of the company that we were having an impact on the environment and so we needed to think about ways of minimising that impact and we also needed to not do it by ticking boxes at the end of the year but to build that into the systems, the processes and the decision making. So it was not me on my own by any means but me as part of a team who were able to sort of influence that sort of thinking and policy strategy in, in the company. So I think that having my commitment to sustainability, commitment to the world as a better place, commitment to understanding change and trying to influence outcomes makes me a better board member. Uh, Susan, um, I was reading a piece just recently. I um, was on an, uh, a political correspondent despairing of what he saw in both the American political system and the Australian political system. And what he said was that the, the difficult questions we had to answer, there were no clear right and wrongs. The only way that you could move forward was to find bipartisan points of agreement that made sense. And yet what he saw in America and what he saw in Australia was an inability of political parties to, to, come, to, a, to, to come to a wise consensus. Yeah, well, I, I agree in, entirely. And there's two things I, points I'd just like to make. The first is that I think that governments are abdicating their responsibility to make the decisions where it's grey. And so having a referendum around same-sex marriage to me is abdication of a responsibility. And and uh, so I think that's probably a populist sort of rather than a, a thoughtful approach by government. And the other side of this is this by you know, this lack of ability to actually have a sensible, well-rounded discussion in order to bring different people together to to use all of their skills, their knowledge and their um, their positive contribution to come up with good policies and to shape policies. And so one of my other roles is I chair the Wheeler Centre here in, in Melbourne, in Victoria. And what we have is we have discussions and they are thoughtful discussions so we may have an author who's talking about their their book their latest writing and they put their points of view and there's people in the room who question that and people in the audience who stand up and ask questions and I think that what we're achieving there is the art of a good conversation a positive constructive conversation where there's often people in the view in the room with in the in the forum with very very different views but it's contested it's thought about and it's reasoned with and uh, I think that's a, a really much better example than what we're seeing mm. with our decision makers but it is one of the great contributions that the Wheeler Centre is making. I mean you, you could almost say that you aren't having a good discussion if there's not a contest. Yeah yeah, and and we admit that there's 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 no particular answers that's right or wrong to these issues. So one of the thoughts that we have at the Wheeler Centre is that perhaps what we are is good at conversations, good at those sorts of constructive discussions and and contests of ideas, and um, irrespective of what the particular topic is. And perhaps that's something that we should be looking at how we get the skill into schools and kids and give them. Because the only example they're seeing now is people banging their heads in order to score points. So, 
we can't lose good constructive conversation and dialogue and contest in as order a, as to a get skill. to good decisions. That's right. That, that's all been fantastic, Susan. Thank you very, very much for taking time out to come and talk to us and to talk to the FuturePod community and um, all the best with your work with uh, the female angels and uh, the other things you're, you're, you're involved in. Thank you. And well done, Peter, for your initiative in this broadcasting. It's very well done. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.